You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 226 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we get the show on the road, I need to ask you, the listener, for a favor. If you really like this podcast and want to support me, then please become a patron. I hope you appreciate this ad-free podcast and I know there are a lot of listeners out there and I hope more of you can become patrons. It does really help. Not just financially, it also shows your commitment to the podcast and it inspires me to do better and better episodes. Just go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. There's also a link in the program notes and on naturalbornalchemist.com. Sometimes I get reviews on iTunes and you yourself are welcome to leave your own review. Here's one I got. Really good stuff. Great podcast. He always gets right into the convo and good at keeping the conversation on fire going. Unlike other podcasters who spend 45 minutes discussing random crap before the episode. Cough, cough, dog and trussle, cough, cough. And this was written by a super cool Eden. Well, thank you. And with that in mind, let's not discuss too much random crap before we get this episode going. Ironically, this episode is in a sense a lot of random crap. Although crap in the most deep sense of the word, uh, you know, good crap. Have you ever asked yourself what you would do if you could have anything? Anything you want. Think about it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll wait. So you managed to think of something that you know you want if you could have anything? Well, here is Terence McKenna's answer to the same question. Imagine for a moment that anything was possible. Imagine, for example, that the laws of physics were suddenly replaced with the laws of the imagination. Well, that's a very interesting meditation because it starts out, at least for me, I think, well, if I could have anything, what would I have? Or what would I like to have if I could have anything? So it begins modestly. I would somehow transfer the Vatican Library to Versailles, and I would live at Versailles, uh, and uh, have access to the Vatican Library and all other books and works of art that have ever existed. And I would walk in a garden, but then I start thinking like this and I say, no, but the, the, the question was, what would it be like if it could be anything? Why would you want Versailles? Why would you want the Vatican Library you, if you could have anything? And you realize our imagination is completely constrained by the laws of physics. What would we become if we could become anything? I mean, if I could snap my fingers and you were omnipotent, what would you do? 
the first thing I would do is I would fly. I would just leap about 300,000 feet in the air and give the cowboy yell. But then you would realize, you know, the entire universe is now your model. You can cross the galaxy in the wink of an eye. You can journey back to the Big Bang in the time it takes to think about it. There is no civilization in the history of the cosmos, no work of art, no ecstasy, no experience that is denied you. And I maintain that we would become, within minutes of this transformation, unrecognizable to ourselves because we are completely defined by our limitations. And, and so that's what I imagine death is. It's the discovery that you can be, do, see, think, and feel anything. After six years of doing this podcast, I still find it hard to grasp what this podcast is really supposed to be about. An alchemy podcast, a psychedelic podcast, a spiritual podcast... But I think I've finally come to understand that this podcast is what it was from the beginning all along. Simply an expression of me. What I think, what I feel and what I ponder about. That's all it is. And if you find that interesting, great. If not, I can't do much more about that. Um, I've had many guests on this podcast and I will have many more. But the regular listener might have noticed that I have fewer guests That is because I don't feel like having as many. You know, I'm actually a recluse, a hermit, a philosopher. I'm also a Gemini, which is why I'm totally fine with the contradiction of doing a public podcast if you're supposed to be a hermit. With that in mind, I want to play a mix I did of Alan Watts and the indie band Blonde Redhead. And if you really pay attention, some of the stuff you're about to hear is real gold for the mind in my opinion. It has become extremely plausible that this trip between the maternity ward and the crematorium is what there is to life. And we still have, going into our common sense, the 19th century myth, which succeeded the ceramic myth in Western history. I call it the myth of the fully automatic model. Man is a little germ that lives on an unimportant rock ball that revolves about an insignificant star on the outer edges of one of the smaller galaxies. But on the other hand, if you think about that for a few minutes, I am absolutely amazed to discover myself on this rock ball rotating around a a spherical fire. It's a very odd situation. (laughs) And the more I look at things, I I cannot get rid of the feeling that existence is quite weird. I know that. See, a philosopher is a sort of intellectual yokel who... uh, (laughs) gawks at things that sensible people uh, take for granted. And sensible people, existence is nothing at all. I mean, it's just basic and just go on and do something. 
See, this is the current movement in philosophy. Logical analysis says you mustn't think about existence. It's a meaningless concept. Therefore, philosophy has become the discussion of trivia. No good philosopher lies awake nights worrying about the destiny of man and the nature of God and the, uh, all that sort of thing, because a philosopher today is a practical fellow who comes to the university with a briefcase at nine and leaves at five. He does philosophy during the day, which is discussing whether certain sentences have meaning and if so, what. And then uh, he would, as William Earle said in a very funny essay, um, he would come to work in a white coat if he thought he could get away with it. <laughs> Problem is, he's lost his sense of wonder. Wonder is, is like, a, in, in modern philosophy, something you mustn't have. It's like enthusiasm in 18th century England. It's very bad form. But you see, I don't know what question to ask when I wonder about the universe. It isn't a question that I'm wondering about, it's a feeling that I have. Because I cannot formulate the question that is my wonder. The moment my mouth opens to utter it, I suddenly find I'm talking nonsense. But that should not uh, prevent wonder from being the foundation of philosophy. So, there is obviously a place in life for a religious attitude in the sense of awe, astonishment at existence. And that is also a basis of respect for existence. We don't have very much of it in this culture, even though we call it materialistic. In the culture that we call materialistic today, we are, of course, bent on the total destruction of material and its conversion into junk and poisonous gas as quickly as possible. This is not a materialistic culture because it has no respect for material. And respect is in turn based on wonder, on feeling the marvel of just an ordinary pebble in your fingers. Here is a tree in the garden, and every summer it produces apples. And we call it an apple tree, because the tree apples. That's what it does. All right. Now here is a solar system inside a galaxy and one of the peculiarities of this solar system is that at least on the planet Earth the thing peoples. <laughs> In just the same way that an apple tree apples. Because you see, we grow out of this world in exactly the same way that the apples grow on the apple tree. If evolution means anything, it means that. But you see, we, we curiously twist it. We say, well, first of all, in the beginning, there was nothing but gas and rock. And then intelligence happened to arise in it, you know, like a sort of fungus or slime on the top of the whole thing. Uh, but we're thinking in a way, you see, that disconnects the intelligence from the rocks. Where there are rocks, watch out. Watch out, because the rocks are going eventually to come alive. And we are finding our rock getting rather worn out in an age where it becomes more and more obvious that our world is a floating world.
It's a world floating in space where all positions are relative and any point may be regarded as the center. A world which doesn't float on anything and therefore the religious attitude appropriate to our time is not one of clinging to rocks but of learning to swim. And you know that if you get in the water and you've nothing to hold on to and you try to behave as you would on dry land, you will drown. But if on the other hand you trust yourself to the water and let go, you will float. And this is exactly the situation of faith. Because I believe that there is a strong distinction between faith on the one hand and belief on the other. That belief is as a matter of fact quite contrary to faith. Because belief is really wishing, it's from the Anglo-Saxon root leaf to wish, and belief stated say in the creed is a fervent hope that the universe will turn out to be thus and so. And in this sense therefore belief precludes the possibility of faith because faith is openness to truth, to reality, whatever it may turn out to be. I want to know the truth. That is the attitude of faith. And therefore, to use ideas about the universe and about God as something to hang on to in the spirit of rock of ages cleft for me. And there's something very rigid about a rock. Now, if you go to a Zen teacher, he'll say, well, I have nothing to teach. There is no problem. Everything's perfectly clear. And you think that one over. And you say, he's probably being cagey. <laughs> but the teacher says, quite honestly, I haven't anything to tell you. So the student thinks, my, this is very deep because <laughs> this nothing that he's talking about, this nothing that he teaches, is what they call in Buddhism shunyata, and it's supposed to be the ultimate reality. But as you know, if you know anything about these doctrines, this doesn't mean real nothingness, not kind of just nothing there at all, not just blank, but it means no thingness. It's the transcendental reality behind all separate and individual things, and that's something very deep and profound. So he knows that when the teacher said, I have nothing to teach, he meant this very esoteric no thing. I had a friend who was studying Zen in Japan, and he got pretty desperate to produce the answer of who he really is. And on his way to an interview with the master to give an answer to the problem, he noticed a very common sight in Japan, a big bullfrog sitting around in the garden. And he swooped this bullfrog up in his hand and dropped it in the sleeve of his kimono. And then he went into the master. And to give the answer of who he was, he suddenly produced the bullfrog. And the master said, mm-mm, too intellectual. <laughs> in other words, this answer is too contrived. It's too much like Zen. <laughs> You've been reading too many books. <laughs> it's not the genuine thing.
The Christian proverb is that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And uh, so people, in other words, have to get desperate. Imagine the idea that the moment you were born, you were kicked off the edge of a precipice and you're falling. As you fell, a great lump of rock came with you and is traveling alongside you. And you're clinging to it for dear life and thinking, gee, I've got to hold on to this, you see? Well, it doesn't do a thing for you. And you'll only, it's only making you anxious. And it's only when you understand that it doesn't do a thing for you that you let go and relax. So everybody's in this situation. We're all completely insecure. We're all headed straight for death as if we had been condemned by a judge. And yet here we are all clinging on to things. And we, we have all sorts of alibis for doing this. We say, well, I have responsibilities for my dependents and I've got to cling on. But all you're doing is you're teaching your dependents to cling in the same way as you are. And making them miserable by learning to go on surviving compulsively. So the thing is, same way, if you're caught in a torrent and you try to get out of it by swimming against it, you'll just wear yourself out and you're still carried along with it. So the sensible thing to do is to turn around and swim with it. And if you want to get out of it, swim towards the edge. But go with it. Same way when you're sailing. Always keep the wind in your sails. If you want to go against the wind, tack. But use the wind. So it's this way, you know, we're all in this great stream of change, which we call life. We are the stream. If you imagine you're separate from it and you're being carried along by it as if you were a cork, that's a delusion. You're a wave of the stream itself. So get with it. When the great Dr. D.T. Suzuki was asked, what is it like to be enlightened? He said, it's just like ordinary everyday experience, except about two inches off the ground. Because what is altered is not the way your senses perceive. What is altered is the, what you think about it. Your definitions of what you see. Your evaluation of it. So when you don't cling to it, when you have no longer a hostile attitude to the world because you know the world is you, it is. I mean, let's take it from the point of view of biology. If I describe the behavior of a living organism, I cannot possibly describe that behavior without simultaneously describing the behavior of the environment. So that I discover that I don't describe organisms in environments, I describe a unified field of behavior called an organism environment. It's an awkward word. But there it is. The environment doesn't push the organism around. The organism doesn't push the environment around. They are two aspects or poles of the same process. In music, though, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that was so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. <laughs> And there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance.
Now, but we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on, and then you get out of grade school, you've got high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming. Then you're gonna go to college, and by Joe, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. And they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end, and the thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. Dancing, when you dance, do you aim to arrive at a particular place on the floor? Is that the idea of dancing? <laughs> the aim of dancing is to dance. Why do we love nonsense? Why do we love Lewis Carroll? With his, "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave, all mimsy were the borough groves and the mumraths outgrabe. Why is it that um, all those old English songs are full of faldy riddle Ido and hey nonny nonny and all those babbling choruses? Why is it that when uh, we get Hep with jazz. We just go booty 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 boo and so on and enjoy ourselves swinging it. It is this participation in the essential, glorious nonsense that is at the heart of the world, that isn't going anywhere, that is a dance. But it seems that only in moments of unusual insight and illumination that we get the point of this and find that thus the true meaning of life is no meaning 
that its purpose is no purpose and that its sense is nonsense. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. 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 Dick Gregory was an American comedian, civil rights activist, social critic, writer, conspiracy theorist, entrepreneur, and occasional actor. During the turbulent 1960s, Gregory became a pioneer in stand-up comedy for his non-holds-barred sets, in which he mocked bigotry and racism. Dick Gregory performed primarily to black audiences at segregated clubs until 1961, when he became the first black comedian to successfully cross over to white audiences, appearing on television and putting out comedy albums. Gregory was at the forefront of political activism in the 60s, when he protested the Vietnam War and racial injustice. He was arrested multiple times and went on many hunger strikes. And he later became a speaker and author, primarily promoting spirituality. Dick Gregory died of heart failure at a Washington, D.C. hospital at the age of 84 in August 2017. Now, why am I telling you all this? Why did you just get a short biography of Dick Gregory. Well, because this man deserves to have more fans. And here is the man himself in all his passionate glory. Again, you are going to be blasted with some wisdom from a man that knows his shit. Just pay attention to the way he says, huh? And the way he gets enraged on the guy he is speaking to. It's quite funny. Anyway, here's the great Dick Gregory. The, um, the press is part of the system. I mean, Rockefeller, men, the richest people in the world, gonna let the New York Times and Ellie print what they want to print. You know, a bunch of unethical thugs, pimps and whores, and they control everything. Because we, the people, hear what they tell us. And because they white, white folks, not black folks even, questions it, you know. Queen Elizabeth. See, white ain't a color. Most of y'all ain't never met a white person. White person ain't never met a white person. White's not a color, it's an attitude. And if you ain't got trillions of dollars in the bank, you can't have the attitude. Queen Elizabeth make $360 million every 24 hours, just interest on her money. Every 24 hours. Hmm? Plus, you don't even understand money. You take a million dollars. Every nigga I see won't be a millionaire. 
take a million dollars and change it into seconds. A million seconds is 13 days. Take a billion dollars and change it into seconds is 32 years. Who want to be a millionaire but a fool? But if you don't know that, if you don't know that, and that's the games they play. And yet, Queen Elizabeth cannot go in London without getting permission from the Lord Mayor. Hmm? Did you hear me? Because, see, London's not part of Britain. Like Rome's, the Vatican's not part of Rome. So if they give her the permission, the Lord Mayor, then she got to go dress up like a servant and come through the back gate, the temple gate, and they do that devil ritual with the purple and all the stuff on. Queen Elizabeth. Okay. These are the games they play. But then you listen to something else that you're born with. Have you ever heard of Marie Antoinette? Of course. Yeah, I didn't say of course. I'm sorry. I said it because I heard of her. Everybody heard. You know what the bitch look like? Huh? Yes, I do. Okay. And what brought her down? The let me cake. Okay. Now, think about that. Because I did when I, I ain't never met a nigga didn't like cake. What did that bitch do? There's a universal thing she interfered with. That's simple. There ain't no guns. Huh? No bullets. She said, let them eat cake. I ain't never met somebody that didn't like cake. But you better not tell me. That's what it's about. And then the rest of the country said, okay, let's have welfare. Let's give free food away. Hmm? Never let this happen to us. They bumped into something they couldn't deal with. Huh? That's simple. I ain't never knew what that bitch looked like. Still don't know what she looked like. Not interested in knowing what she looked like. Huh? But I know about that. I know about that. And so the whole, the, the, the whole game is something that's bigger than us. Huh? You get on a show and do a show and try to tell, especially poor folk, that reading is a violation of the universe. If you get on a plane today and go to Tokyo, can you read a Japanese paper? Do you think the universe made something that changed when you cross a border? Because when this planet, there were no borders. Hmm? Mm -hmm. You hear me? Yes. There were no borders. This is bullshit so I can control you. Hmm? I got 10 children. If you interviewed my children and they told you, we're so scared of our daddy. What? Well, he taught us to fear him. You know I'm crazy, right? Then when they tell you fear God, you don't think God's crazy? Or are they lying? Huh? Fear is a negative. But if you do the research and find out what fear do to your body, huh? Fear God. Is that a bitch? And we believe it. Hmm? White's not a color, it's the attitude. Huh?
white's not a color, it's an attitude. Huh? White's not a color, it's an attitude. Now, I'm sure that most of you know the old story about the astronaut who went far out into space and was asked on his return whether he had been to heaven and seen God. And he said, yes. And so they said to him, well, what about God? And he said, she is black. <laughs> huh? Say what you like, but in my view, Dick's the man. And speaking of Dick's, here's Bill Hicks. Okay, it's time for some uh, time for a question. This question I'm going to ask you is very crude. <laughs> Are there actually women in the world who do not like to give blowjobs? <laughs> See a lot of guys on dates got their fingers crossed here tonight. <laughs> Answer him, honey. Go ahead. Let's hear how you feel about this right now. Go ahead, speak up. Let's hear. The reason I ask, all right, I was with this woman one time, and she goes down here for like three seconds and starts coming back up. And I'm going, Unless you're getting up to put ice in your mouth. <laughs> anyway, without getting graphic. <laughs> she actually said to me, I think you've had enough. <laughs> huh? <laughs> I think you've had enough. Really? <laughs> I think you're gonna know when I've had that. <laughs> It's a pretty definite ending to this. Not a lot of gray area. Barely cut and dry. But anyway, it blew my mind and it's all it blew. So I've been inquiring from audiences. Why people, and I'm not asking women, why people in general don't do everything with their lover? I can't, I can't conceive of that. I don't understand it. I hear complaints on both sides. Oh, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. But why, let's just get more specific, you ladies don't do, won't, I mean, don't, I mean, not all of you, but why won't you do that to your guy? I mean, and make that, I don't know, the focal point of your existence while on this planet. <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? Every second you're away. I mean, you know, why don't you, you know, I don't understand why you, that's, uh, you know. I actually, uh, a woman one night yelled out, yeah, you ever try it? I said, yeah. Almost broke my back.
knocks out one vertebrae, I swear to God. It's that close. I think that vertebrae is going to be the thing to go in our next evolutionary step. Just a theory and a fervent prayer. Yeah, now all the guys are going, honey, I have no idea what he's talking about. I think he's a devil child. That may be true, but guys, you know what I'm talking about. I can speak for every guy here in this room tonight. Guys, if you could blow yourselves, ladies, you'd be in this room alone right now, watching an empty stage. folks are proud of me. <laughs> Bill, honey, you still doing that suck your own cock, Bill? <laughs> yeah, Mom. Good, baby. That's such a crowd pleaser. <laughs> How clever are you to come up with a suck your own cock bit, honey? <laughs> You're so clever, it makes your mama's bosom swell with pride. Knowing her son is traveling the world using his given surname going up in front of rooms of total strangers and doing the suck your own cock piece. Thanks, Mom. No biggie. So I asked this woman who said that. You ever try it? So let me ask you, why don't you like to do that to your guy? Because it's disgusting. Disgusting? Well, that's a little harsh. And also a double standard, because you know what? I've never heard you ladies say it's disgusting. When we're down between your legs, gnawing away. Oh, this is so gross. I'm going to throw up. Oh, don't put your finger in my Oh, that's rude. I've never heard that. And again, maybe I can't hear it because your thighs are clamped. people at Sunday school ask me when you're going to be performing in the area. <laughs> Bill, they all are so curious to see the material you're doing now. And they're all sure they want to see the suck your own cock bit followed by the eat the pussy sketch. <laughs> Bill, I only wish your grandparents were still alive. <laughs> If only you hadn't put him in that Chuck Norris film, baby. <laughs> I wish to God your grandparents could see their grandson on stage using his given surname, performing the suck the own cock bit plus the pussy-eating sketch. 
Maybe they're hearing it in heaven, Mom. Son, is there any way I could ask you to type up the suck your own cock bit and so I could pin it to your grandmama's headstone? <laughs> I thought it was a good idea to round off all the intellectual discourse we heard from Alan Watts and Dick Gregory with some simple comedy from Bill Hicks. As always... And perhaps it should be a catchphrase of this podcast. I hope it wasn't too much all over the place. But I can't help it. The episode you just heard is the episode I wanted to hear myself right now. Are you going to come by next week and listen to next week's episode? Huh? It's going to be about psychedelics and history. Anyway, I hope you drop by. Let's finish with the song Sweet Victory by none other than SpongeBob SquarePants. Freedom is in the mind. Last one to find